This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Right, as I was saying, I'm so glad to be here. I thank um, Mako for inviting me to speak, Mako and Choro. And uh, I just wanted to say I'm a little nervous this morning. You know, some Dharma Talks, you put them together and they just kind of flow and they're easy. This one doesn't feel easy to me yet, so I'm a little nervous. But it occurred to me, you know, we've been talking a lot lately about the one who's not busy. There's also one who's not nervous. So I'm trying to manifest myself as the one who's not nervous. I hope it works. Okay, I want to kick my talk off with a, a verse. This is a verse from um, The Way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva. Just, I'm just curious, how many people are familiar with The Way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva? Okay, a few, five or six, but so many people are shaking their heads. So, and I'm prepared for that. <laughs> and I'm gonna start off with this verse. I took a class in this. I took a class in this from Flint Sparks and I see you're here, Charles, so, uh, and there's probably some other people that knew Flint, but he, he gave a course in this about oh, a long, long time ago. And um, I remember uh, one verse from it that has stuck with me ever, ever since I took that class. And uh, so I'm gonna read that verse. Maybe you recognize it. To cover all the earth with sheets of hide, where could such amounts of skin be found? But simply wrap some leather around your feet and it's as if the whole earth had been covered. I'm not sure why this stuck with me, uh, but I've been using uh, Pema Chodron's book called No Time to Lose. Maybe you've seen this book, which is a commentary on the way of the Bodhisattva. And I'm gonna talk about the history of that. Um, and she says in the book that this is actually the most popular uh, verse in the in the book. So I guess there was some good reason why I why it stuck with me. It's, uh, did everybody get that? Should I read it again? Okay, I read it again. To cover all the earth with sheets of hide, where could such amounts of skin be found? But simply wrap some leather around your feet. And it's as if the whole earth had been covered. So in other words, if you want to protect yourself from the hard rocks and the thorns of the world, wear shoes. And there's no place you can't go. Likewise, interpreting this in a practice way, which is, of course, what it was meant for, if you want to survive the world intact, toughen up, put on your shoes and train your mind. So there's something I think very primal about this advice. I mean, it's so simple, it's so logical and it applies to so many aspects of our life. Uh, a story comes to me about the, uh, the Buddha, the Buddha's enlightenment. Remember that the night before his enlightenment, Mara, who's the Buddhist devil, that little devil in our heads that tells us we don't really have to practice and that we should just go get go to Starbucks or watch a movie and get famous and make a lot of money instead of practicing. But the Mara, Mara was talking to the Buddha, trying to tempt him away, trying to convince him not to be 
go on with this enlightenment stuff. Um, so he uh, brought in armies and the armies shot arrows at the Buddha, but the arrows all fell at the Buddha's, turned into flowers and fell at the Buddha's feet. So um, somehow I relate that story to the idea of wearing shoes and um, protecting ourselves from what, how, how was the Buddha able to not feel the pain of the arrows and feel the pain of how can we uh, learn to not feel the hatred and the uh, projections and the judgments that people put on us? How can we learn not to let that put, knock us off of our, of, our, of our place, knock us out of our seat? How can we do that? And, um, and that's what this, this book or this uh, writing by Shantideva is, is um, a treatise on uh, how to... Um, how to live, um, you know, to train, how to train our minds to um, withstand uh, all kinds of emotional uh, problems. And um, so a, a little bit of history uh, in this, in this book, since a lot of most people have not heard of it. Shantideva was uh, an Indian prince who lived in the 8th century. Uh, he was to be uh, crowned king, but he ran away the night before his coronation. Nobody knows why he ran away. Was he scared of being a king or did he, was it more like the Buddha that he really wanted, preferred to seek a spiritual life? Because that's what he did. He went, he went as a renunciate around the world, I mean around the countryside. And he ended up at uh, Nalanda University, which was the biggest Buddhist university in India at the time, probably the biggest university. Uh, it's funny to me to think of there being universities back in the, in the eighth century. Um, anyway, uh, Nalanda was not well received at, uh, at Nalanda University. He was not uh, respected. Uh, Apparently, he didn't go to classes, he didn't study, and uh, he was uh, just considered, a, he just didn't fit in, and the monks uh, um, were not fond of him. And so to mock him, they held a, a, a big event and they invited him to speak. And this was, the, he was going to speak in the hall where only the best uh, students got to speak, but they asked him to speak, probably to mock him, maybe to teach him something, who knows what was, what all, what all really happened, it was a long time ago. They built, a, there's a, a big uh, sort of a throne-like thing at the front of the room where the speaker would, would climb up some stairs and sit, well, the, the monks raised it up really high to make it hard for him to get, to get up there. And there, it's, it appears that they wanted to humiliate him, but he uh, somehow made it up to the the seat, and uh, he then asked the monks, "Do you want me to teach you something traditional, or would you like uh, something new?" And the monks uh, oh, said they wanted something new. So he began, and what he came out with was absolutely amazing. 
he recited over 700 verses. They're, the verses are all four lines long, like that one that I read. And, um, and they were, it was just such an incredible presentation. The monks blown away. Uh, the way Pema describes it, their heads expanded. I mean, their minds, I mean, I don't mean their heads, their minds expanded. And uh, as he got deeper and deeper into his presentation, got into the, the, the emptiness part at the end, uh, the myth goes that he actually levitated and got up so high they couldn't even see him anymore. They could only hear him. And then uh, after the presentation, he um, disappeared. He left the university and again, went back to being a wandering, a wandering yoga or yogi around around India. Um, so he starts off um, the first verse, his introductory verse goes like this. To those who go in bliss, the Dharma they have mastered, and to all their heirs, to all who merit veneration, I bow down. According to the tradition, I shall now in brief describe the entrance to the Bodhisattva discipline. I don't know if 747 verses is brief, but he did manage to span the whole, uh, um, the whole practice, the whole Buddhist practice, and he did it by arranging things according to the paramitas, the, the six paramitas. Um, I always have trouble remembering them, but the paramitas of morality, enthusiasm, generosity, meditation, wisdom, and patience. So this verse that I read about the covering our feet in leather and thus protecting us from, from the world uh, is from the chapter about uh, morality or discipline. So uh, having the discipline to uh, tame your mind so I just wondered if, if there's any questions so far, like if anybody didn't understand the verse, um, let me know and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk, I can repeat. One thing about this, uh, this writing, uh, the translations that seem to be popular are very old and the writing is a little difficult sometimes to understand. And it's also very futile. I mean, like this period I think was very full of warriors and there, there's a lot of a feeling of fighting and the word fighting is used not just to mean to fight and kill people, but to fight your, your own nature, you know, to, to uh, vanquish. And so there's that kind of language, which is a little maybe off-putting to some of us, you know, but practice in a, in a gentler, in a gentler manner. Um, so anyway, back to that story about the Buddha and the arrows that uh, turned into flowers and landed at his feet. How did the Buddha get to the place where he did not experience the hatred of others, where he didn't let it uh, affect his mind? How did he get there? And can we get there? Or can we at least get there a little bit? So how can we learn to deal with life's vicissitudes, uh, you know, include, you know, the anger and the judgment of others? And how can we learn to bear sadness and, and deal with fear? And how can we control our craving? Well, 
that's what the way of the Bodhisattva was uh, trying to is trying to teach us. And it's really um, a wonderful, um, a wonderful um, uh, study. And I have to admit that when I first learned it or when I first experienced it in this class with Flint, I wasn't uh, really, really drawn to it. But uh, revisiting it for this talk has really uh, gotten me kind of excited about it. Um, when I was interested, it was interesting to read Pema Children's introduction that she too did not did not exactly fall in love with it right away, but she kept pursuing it because um, many people that she respected loved it. I was thinking this morning about this practice, and uh, you know we always hear a lot about how rare it is to uh, have a human life. And I was thinking, you know, in this country and in the Western part of the world, it's really very rare, rare to do this practice also. And uh, so those of us that are led to this practice by whatever forces uh, in our lives that have brought us here are really, really very lucky. Uh, uh, things have conspired in such a way that we're here and there's not that many of us, you know, when you look at the number of, of um, Buddhists in the United States, or at least converted Buddhists, um, you know, it's, it's not a very big number. So we're just, we're, we're rare too. And it can fill it, and it fills me with gratitude just to um, know that I've got this practice and that has, it, has, it has meant so much to me. And also that we've got all these teachings. I mean, you think that the Buddha learned all this without any teachings, without any teacher, uh, it's it's kind of mind-boggling. So when you think about ways that we can, all the different ways that we uh, protect ourselves from pain and suffering and emotional distress, all the different ways we do it, you know, we put on heavy armor and, and hide somewhere. I picture some metal, big metal armor with the knee joints and the visor that you can shut your clink shut and you can't see uh, so you don't have to see what you don't want to see uh, very very confining way of uh, dealing with our pain uh, I think about all the escapes that we have which uh, while they're entertaining and, and and make us feel like we're not suffering at the time they don't really help us you know things like just keeping busy, drinking, watching movies, you know, all the, all the entertainments that we enjoy. Not, not that I don't want to get rid of them, but it, it is one of the methods that some of us, we use to escape from, from pain. Doesn't work so well. Uh, and I think about, I think what's, you know, this, this analogy about covering the world with leather as opposed to just putting some leather around your feet uh, maybe refers to the fact that we want to, uh, the, one of the other ways that we feel that we can protect ourselves from pain is to just control everything. We can control all our, all our little world. We can, uh, you know, make sure that we shout down anybody that might say anything that we don't want to hear. Uh, we can chair a meeting and make sure we're the only one that talks so that we don't have to hear any, any pushback or any, uh, um, you know, anything unpleasant or that we don't have to, and, and we, you know, 
trying to make enough money that we can buy anything that we need. Uh, don't have to depend on any, any we don't have to go without. We, uh, you know, a lot of talk about entitlement these days. So um, these are some of the ways we deal with pain, but so much simpler to just wear shoes, to just wrap leather around your feet, train your mind, and then you can go anywhere. You're free. So um, let's look at some of the teachings from this book. Uh, I, I was kind of followed through on the anger idea. And so um, I have a couple of uh, uh, things from the, from the chapter on patience, you know, one of the, the paramita of patience. Uh, this is one of the uh, one in one of the chapters, chapter six in the book. Oh, the book is divided into their, this writing. It's not really a book. This this these uh, uh, seven hundred and forty-seven verses are divided into ten chapters, and uh, chapter six is working with anger. But it's really uh, it, and it's about patience because patience is the antidote to anger. Oh, by the way, I read something interesting in, uh, in, in Pema's book uh, that she said she was quoting the Dalai Lama. I hadn't heard this before, but I thought it was uh, interesting to note. The Dalai Lama said he prefers to use the word uh, hatred instead of anger. And you know how anytime there's a discussion about anger, there's always a, the, 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 it always comes up that, well, you know, anger accomplishes a lot for us. Anger is... Uh, uh, there's righteous anger. You know, there's a lot of anger now around uh, whiteness and white privilege. And, um, you know, so there's a pretty big argument that anger isn't always something we want to get rid of. And anger is, uh, is necessary. Um, but hatred, uh, the Dalai Lama preferred the word hatred because uh, hatred is always uh, a poison. Hatred is always something to get rid of something to work on. Um, and I thought that was kind of, that kind of eliminated a, a certain amount of, uh, of confusion. However, I find it hard to word, use the word hatred because it's such a strong word in our culture. And um, I'll probably continue to word, use the word anger, but I, I just thought I'd mention that. I, thought, I found that was a, a helpful um, thing. You know, and, and to Buddhists, actually hatred is just about it's just about any kind of inversion, aversion is, can be called hatred. Even not liking a certain color or, or not liking the clothes somebody's wearing, um, it can be called hatred. And if you've ever had, uh, had uh, an issue with somebody arise while you're in Sashin or you're in some sort of a situation, you're really deeply uh, in touch with yourself you can see how strong anger is, even at little tiny things that happen, how very strong anger is. It's like a, it really is like a fire. So Shanti Deva's approach to working with patience has three parts. Um, he first, he, he talks about uh, 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 arriving at patience by uh, dealing with our, or learning to be with discomfort. And um, what is discomfort? Well, discomfort is not getting what you want or getting the things you don't want. Um, so practicing uh, patience 
uh, we can work with by uh, reframing our attitude towards discomfort. And we certainly uh, see that, that that's what our practice is all about. That's why uh, when we're sitting in the Zendo in regular life, not necessarily here on this Zoom world, uh, we're admonished that it is not cool to get up in the middle of a, a Zazen period and just leave when you want to, or maybe because things are too uncomfortable for you. The reason we sit through is to learn to deal with discomfort, mental, mental anguish, even uh, physical discomfort, um, you know, mild physical, normal uh, physical discomfort, you know, having, of sitting in a, that's one reason we sit in a kind of a strange, um, pretzel-like position um, and we don't normally sit on a couch with our back supported you know and kind of our legs up on a uh, hassock and we we sit upright and uh, learn to uh, sit through mild discomfort. Uh, the other uh, uh, the second uh, kind of patience that, uh, or the way of practicing with patience uh, comes from understanding uh, the complexity of, of the world, this interconnectedness, this dependent co-arising that I don't want to get into here, but anyway, the fact that we're all related and that everything happens that happens to us affects us. And... Um, that we act out of our, our karma. And so every, every, all our interactions with people are much more complex than we like to, than we like to think they are. Um, you know, um, that all the people that we like to, we like to blame, we like to come up with a nice neat little way of blaming someone for hurting us. But we know that they hurt us only out of their own pain, and um, and that really uh, things that happen to us aren't anything to take personally. And the third way of working with patience that Shanti Deva covers is uh, patience that comes from just developing tolerance. So in this chapter uh, or in the section about. Um, uh, working with discomfort and learning to uh, sit through discomfort. One of the things that Chanti Diva points out is a lot of times our suffering uh, has, well, not, not a lot of times, all of the time, actually, all of the time, our, uh, our suffering results from our point of view. Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, what's happening through our own filters. Um, and we're not really seeing things in, in reality. So um, learning to recognize your own filters and the, the, um, oh, the randomness of, of what bothers you and what doesn't. What bothers me today may not bother me at all tomorrow. So we, we see that this, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, our, it's our outlook, it's our way of looking at things, it's the way we create our world. We create our whole world uh, in, based on our, our conditioning. And it isn't real what, what someone, what I don't like, someone else loves. 
So uh, learning to see this clearly is a huge help in developing patience. Um, I can remember years ago, maybe after this Zen Center, we moved into this Zen Center. I went through a period of several years where the air conditioner used to bother me just terribly. And um, I would hear it click on, or I would hear it click, or I think it still does this. I think our air conditioner in the Zendo still does this, although I don't know if anybody can remember that because it's been so long since we've been in there. But uh, the air conditioner would click on or you'd hear a click and then you know, oh, it's coming, the air conditioner is gonna come on. Oh, I hate it when the air conditioner comes on. And, and then I would hear a click soon that indicated it was gonna go off and I, oh God, oh, it's gonna be quiet again. I'm so happy, you know, so I, my mood would go up and down with this. And, uh, you know, that went on for a long time for me. And then, I don't know, um, maybe, maybe several years, I suddenly realized, oh, the air conditioner doesn't bother me anymore at all. And I'm sure you all have uh, many things that you could uh, bring up about things that, that bother you and then they just don't bother you anymore. Something else comes along instead. So, so here's a, uh, two verses that, that go together uh, from, from the way of the Bodhisattva that, uh, where he's addressing this, this issue of our conditioned minds and how one thing and it, and it also shows the, the kind of futileness of the, the writing in this, in this book. Um, so uh, verse 6.17, there are some whose, there are some whole, oh, okay, misprint. There are some whose bravery increases at the sight of their own blood, while some lose all their strength and faint when it's another's blood they see. This results from how the mind is set in steadfastness or cowardice. And so I'll scorn all injury and hardships I will disregard. So uh, again, a little difficult to probably grab onto on a, on a first reading, but basically he's saying, there are some people that see even their own blood, and it inspires bravery in them. And there are some people that see even the blood of other people, and it frightens them, and they lose their strength and fear. And, and then he says, so this all results from how our mind is set. And then he says, in steadfastness or cowardice. So he's calling the people who, are, who uh, don't like the sight of blood, he's calling them cowards. But again, that's that, that mindset, I think, of the time. So... Uh, and so he says, I'll scorn all injury and the hardships I will disregard because they're so fleeting and they're so, uh, they're so made up. They're so uh, kind of false. I mean, our hardships, what we decide is a hardship is, uh, is our own story. And then he also, he's got a, I'm just uh, picked out a few of, the, of his verses to talk about here. Um, so he teaches, he, he also, his last verse in this section about, uh, about um, you know, sitting with discomfort uh, goes like this. Suffering also has its worth. Those sorrow, through sorrow, pride is driven out and pity felt for those who wander in samsara. Evil is avoided, goodness seems delightful. Um, so he's saying that, uh, Suffering has its worth, 
through sorrow, pride is driven out. So uh, sitting with our own suffering, seeing our suffering clearly uh, humbles us, um, makes us realize we're, we're, part of the, we're part of the whole thing. Uh, we're not beyond suffering. We're, we're humbled by it. And then the next line, and pity felt for those who wander in samsara. We are learning to understand the suffering of others through understanding the suffering of ourselves. So, um, and then the last line, evil is avoided, goodness seems delightful. Pema talks about that is that sitting with our suffering makes us eager to live our, our lives in, in ways that dismantle this habit. Uh, the habits that cause us so much grief. I think by seeing our suffering so clearly, we become more and more eager to, um, uh, to, to deal with it and to learn to, uh, to live with us and, uh, not be, and not be knocked off of our, you know, not blown away by it, knocked down by it. So in the section where he talks about um, understanding complexity, one of his themes is that we don't get angry uh, when something, a force of nature happens. You know, if a tree limb falls on us, uh, we, don't, we don't get angry. But, but if somebody uh, hits us with a tree limb, we're furious because we as, uh, ascribe uh, motives to uh, another person who who we feel has hurt us. Um, the teaching is that people are themselves victims of their own habit energy. In other words, people are living out their own karma. When they hurt you, it, it's not about you, it's about them, as we all know. So his verse on this is, I am not angry with my bile and other humors, the fertile source of pain and suffering, so why should I resent my fellow creatures, victims too of like conditions? So in other words, uh, I'm not angry with my body, other humors. I'm not angry with my body when it gets sick or when it gets hurt and when I'm uh, physically suffering, uh, I'm feeling pain and suffering through, through my body. We don't get angry at our body well, maybe for a little while, but, you know, it's not the same as if we perceive that someone else has hurt us. So why should I resent my fellow creatures who are also victims of like conditions? So learning to see that we're all victims of conditions um, can help us be patient with, uh, uh, with someone when we feel like we've been hurt or... Um, so we, did, we didn't ask to be born. Uh, we didn't ask to be brought up oh, with this, whatever kind of, we didn't ask to be brought up with whatever conditioning we, we ended up with, you know, and the family that we were born into. We didn't ask for any of that. And uh, our conditioning is gonna cause us uh, certain problems for us and for other people. But does it make sense to get angry with other people who are just living out their conditioning? Because, you know, I know when I, I do something that's just something I really can't help, uh, uh, I, I feel deeply resentful when someone gets angry at me. Um, and I'm, I'm uh, 
I'm up there in years. I have uh, trouble hearing these days. And uh, a friend got really irritated with me because I asked her several times, what did you say? And I felt really bad. And I realized how, yeah, I mean, I can't help that I can't hear. And, um, and it feels just all kinds of wrong for somebody to get angry at me. But then I thought about how many times I do that to other people that I get angry um, uh, because somebody's just doing something that they, uh, that is, they can't help doing. It's, it's part of their, their karma or part of their, um, their age due to their age or due to uh, maybe a, a, a sickness or how many times I've judged other people that just are too tired all the time. And then I find out later on that, you know, they have a, a disability that I didn't even know they had. Um, so anyway, this is the, the kind of, of work that he asks us to do in, in this section. Okay, and the third uh, way of practicing with uh, patients uh, is uh, learning to uh, develop develop tolerance. And uh, I love this little pair of of, uh, of uh, verses that uh, he uh, uses in, in this section about developing tolerance. Uh, so, okay, there's there's it's a pair of them. The first one is. If those who are like wanton children are by nature prone to injure others, what point is there in being angry? It's like resenting fire for its burning. Uh, so the translation of that <laughs> is that there are certain immature people that you probably know, and they are just uh, kind of troublemakers. They, they do things that hurt other people and hurt themselves. And that's just the way they are. What good does it do to be angry at them? It's like resenting fire for burning. So I love that. Uh, I think that's been helpful to me even in the, uh, just this week. Um, and the other verse that kind of goes along with that, that now that one was about, uh, say, people that you know that are immature or put anything in there, people that are cranky or people that are, uh, don't always do the smartest things, maybe people that aren't too bright. And, you know, they're, they're just doing what they do. It doesn't do any good to get angry at them. It's like, it's like resenting the fire for burning. Uh, the other verse has to do with people that you like, your friends, people that you normally, you know, find very, uh, um, uh, fun to be with, um, but they have little little things that irritate you. So here's the here's the verse. And if their faults are fleeting and contingent, if living beings are by nature wholesome, it's likewise senseless to resent them. It's as as well as it's like being angry at the sky for having clouds. <laughs> so I, I love that idea that, uh, you know, there's uh, clouds in this, uh, these, these wholesome people that, that we enjoy, maybe some of our uh, Dharma brothers and sisters that we find delightful, but every once in a while they do something that irritates us. It's just a little cloud in the sky. So, uh, and then uh, another um, thing about um, this in this section is, is about how 
a lot of times it's our own uptightness that that causes the pain um, and as much pain as anyone else can give can do to us and it doesn't do much good and she, he talks about retaliation doesn't do any good so uh, the the verse that uh, in, that I'm quoting here is, this human form is like a running sore. Merely touched, it cannot stand the pain. Our body is like a running sore. It, you know, it's hard to stand the pain. I'm the one who clings to it with blind attachment. Whom should I resent when pain occurs? So the clinging to and the fear of pain that can cause so much uh, um, suffering in us and we we look out we want to blame somebody for it but who can we blame you know it's just our body it's just just being a human being who can we blame uh, and we make ourselves uh, suffer through trying to figure out who to blame I talked to my sister-in-law yesterday her mother died of COVID on Wednesday and um, she said, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the denial, or I'm in the anger stage right now. And she's very angry with the hospital because she felt like, and this must happen a lot. Um, her mother is 80 years old. And um, so she's all upset about the hospital and what the hospital did wrong. And she felt like the hospital decided her mother was going to die when she first came in there and didn't do things they could have done to keep her alive. Um, and I think this is a kind of suffering that, um, you know, we all go through when a loved one dies in a hospital. And of course, there's a lot of that going on now. Uh, but, you know, I could, I could just see her just creating her own suffering, you know, by getting uh, obsessed with this. And, uh, and I think she's going to be okay. I think she knows that this is a phase she's going through. But, you know, and you see somebody creating their own suffering like that. Well, we're, we're all doing that all the time, creating our own suffering. Um, and um, so, you know, we we create our we create our own world and many times we make ourselves miserable and it's so unnecessary and i think this practice can help us so much to see when we're doing that and um i want to close and read uh some words from the the this, this is uh, what bruce read yesterday in morning meditation it's from um Blanche's book, uh, Seeds, for, Seeds for a Boundless Life, uh, which, by the way, uh, our speaker in uh, two weeks sends you Earthland Manuel, uh, was the person uh, most responsible for putting this book together. So um, uh, she uh, edited all of, of, of Blanche's talks. I don't know how many of you have this book, but it's beautiful. And this is what Bruce read, which I think has a little bit of bearing on my talk today. If we're open to embracing the surprises as they arise, then there will be inconceivable joy, the name of our temple, inconceivable. If we fuss and fume and say, this isn't what I expected, then there will be inconceivable misery. 
just to welcome our life as it arrives, moment after moment, to meet it as fully as we can, being as open to it as we can, being as ready for whatever arises as we can, and meeting it wholeheartedly, this is renunciation. This is leaving behind all our preferences, all our ideas and notions and schemes, just meeting life as it is. So uh, we still have a fair amount of time. And if anybody has any uh, comments or questions, this is uh, David. Hi, Pat. Thanks for that talk. I have a, just a question, um, clarifying question. So when you talked about the three parts of, I believe you call them working with patients, Mm -hmm. First one was learning to be with discomfort. Um, second one was about the complexity and the interconnectedness of the world. And the third one was about developing tolerance. But then as you went a little deeper into it, well, so when you introduced those, I was um, confused about learning to be with discomfort as compared to developing tolerance because they just they seem so connected. But then as you went a little deeper, what I think I heard you say, and this is what I'm asking if, this, if I'm hearing this correctly, did I hear that uh, it's learning to be with our own discomfort? And then in terms of developing tolerance, that seemed to be more externally focused, being tolerant of others, maybe unskillfulness. Is that, did I hear yeah, that correctly? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Very, very, very clearly put. And what a good memory you have too. <laughs> oh, I'm taking notes because you know. Oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're you're spilling the wisdom for us. So I gotta I gotta capture this. Oh, gosh. Thank you, Pat. Yes. That was a, a beautiful service the other night for your mother. And I loved your reading your haiku too. In fact, it made me think something about the way of the Bodhisattva. I thought, wouldn't it be fun to write haiku, turn all these verses into haiku, and <laughs> write them in our own words. <laughs> oh, oh, Rich. Uh, thank you, Pat, for that talk. Uh, I, too, love the Bodhicharya Vatara, and I've Oh, good. When I, before I came to Zen, I studied Tibetan Buddhism, and that was one of my favorite texts to study. Um, I guess one of the things I have a question about, though, is, you know, this question of the idea that you had of, of putting sh uh, leather on your feet. Because it occurs to me that first thing that we do when we enter into Zen practice is we take off our shoes. <laughs> right? Right. I mean, so... And it occurs to me that taking off your shoes is an act of faith or trust. It's like saying, I, I feel safe here to take off my shoes. It's, this place is okay. I can come in and I don't need my shoes because I don't need to like get up suddenly and run out the door because uh, somebody's <laughs> going to attack, somebody's going to attack me. Right. Yeah. And, and then help, help us keep us on our cushion too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I guess one of the things that I've come to think about, especially being a part of the waking up group, 
mm-hmm. is that for me as a white person going into a white sangha, I can take off my shoes pretty easily knowing that it's probably safe to be there. But I think maybe for a black person, a person of color, for Asian person, a LGBTQ person, uh, taking off your shoes and going in and sitting down is an act of faith that may require a lot more work, you know, and it's maybe not so easy. Um, I'm thinking of a situation that happened, if I may tell a story, is, is that okay? Sure. Um, I was uh, the Fukudo one evening at AZC, and I was the first one there, and I opened the door, and I turned on the lights, and I lit the candle and uh, opened the door and all that, you know, and I, I, nobody else was there yet. So I was like the, the Han, uh, the, the Fukudo plus the greeter. And so anybody who came in the door would be the person I had to, to work with. And so the reg- a few regulars came in, but a young black man came in and he looked kind of confused and a little troubled. And I went up to him and said, hello. And he said, do I have to take my shoes off? I've got stinky feet. And I was like, okay, on the one hand, I want to uphold the forms and say, yes, you have to take off your shoes. On the other hand, I wanted to say, just come in and do what, you know, be here. Because I was like, I really wanted him to come in. You know, as a young black person, I was like, this is great. Maybe he'll stay, you know. I really want him to come in and stay. Uh, So I was kind of torn. Like, do I tell him what the official version is or do I just tell him to come in, you know. And... I struggled with that and I came across as like really anxious and nervous about this. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it's our custom to take off our shoes, but you could also just come in. And I think I came across as being like a little bit anxious about him being there. And I think it, I didn't come across as being welcoming and inviting, you know? Uh, so he went in and he sat down and he did the Zazen. I saw him there. And then I saw him at the circle afterward, but I never saw him again after at that, after that AZC ever again. And it stuck with me like, wow, what happened? What happened there? What was that about? And for the longest time, I've been wondering, what was that? You know? Yeah. Well, you know, that happens a lot. People come in the door and don't come back. We have that happen all the time. Yeah. Maybe maybe too much emphasis on blackness here. Sometimes I think it's better to be even-handed about what the rules are. I mean, you know, of course, anybody, if they wanted to keep their shoes on, we would, we would let them if they felt that strongly about it. But uh, I think, yeah. I think in my opinion, this is just my opinion, this could turn into a big discussion, I guess, but I, I think being even-handed is, is perhaps fair and, and keeps you from being anxious and doesn't make him yeah. being treated differently, you know, because as you yeah. said. Well, I mean, I guess I would agree with that, but I also feel like part of the problem was that there was this thing that it was between, there's something outside of us, between him and me, and there was something much bigger than us, which was this question of, where is it safe for a black person to go and take off his shoes and be sit down? Yeah, figuratively, yeah. And and although it may be easy for everybody to take off their shoes, except maybe this guy, uh, taking off the armor that you wear and I think uh, you know the invisible armor that we we wear uh, is maybe more uh, the the shoes are kind of a uh, yeah but we yeah are, yeah so uh, yeah that's that is a big a big thing I, I don't know that's in the, the 
reading a lot about that now in the book that we're studying. Right. And I could note, I noticed my own suffering around that whole issue. Like I was torn up about like wanting this guy to come back. And I was also thinking that maybe this guy was sitting in the Zendo thinking, I wonder what that white man is doing. I wonder if he's calling the police and he's, he's going to call him up and say, Hey, come get this guy. Cause he's dangerous and oh. he's, he's stinking up the place. Yeah. See, that's the trouble when it, it gets to be about us, you know, you were obsessed with what, he was thinking about you and did I do something wrong and, and all this. And yeah, uh, but I, I think it's like the world the burden we bear, isn't it though? That's the yeah, burden but... we bear. So the more of the self that we can let go of the, you know, the less worry we're going to have. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like, I feel like it's a koan for me. Like it doesn't exactly yeah. make sense. Right. Like the world is sort of the way the conditioning of the world is sort of impinging on us. And, you know, when we come in to sit down, we take off our shoes and we're, sort of still confronted with it. it we sort of follows us wherever we go you know and i i agree that we have to put our shoes on to go out into the world into the you know the troubling times that we have but you know there are times of course when you have to take your shoes off and not and be sort of vulnerable and open to the suffering of the world you know and so i think it's a it feels like a koan to me you know of yeah, yeah. We, have to, we have to put our shoes on but sometimes we have to take our shoes off and be sort of vulnerable you know okay so, does thanks. that make sense? Thanks a lot. Yes, it's yeah. A, Thank you for listening to me. Thank you. Sure. For sure. sure. Thanks for the story. Yeah. Uh, see anybody else? Uh, oh, I Kathy. wanted to respond to Richard Rich's statement. Story. Can you hear me? Yes, you're you're loud and clear. Respond to Rich's story. Yes, please. Oh, it's easy now because I'm sitting and I wasn't in your situation. <laughs> so, but my initial off-the-cuff thought is, leave his, let him leave his shoes on. So what? You know, it's kind of like, think of all the times in our Zendo when we've had parties or uh, things where we've left, we've gone in the Zendo with our shoes on. Or, I don't know. That's, but I'm not, I didn't have I think if I was in your situation, I might've been going through what you were going through. But looking back on it and having read Radical Dharma, I kind of my reaction is, what's so terrible about him having his shoes on? <laughs> but that's, that's just my reaction now from a place of, um, but when you say koan, I definitely understand that. Thank you. It's a taboo, isn't it? It's a taboo to leave our shoes on or wear our shoes in the Zendo. So we can look at that as a koan. Yeah. Thank you, Kathy. Oh, I saw a hand just a minute. I was, okay. Oh, oh, Ernest. Yeah. Uh, I just had a, a question about your original uh, story about, uh, the, about the world covered with uh, leather are wearing shoes because I guess on some level I thought I was thinking the story was going to be well if you wear shoes all the time then it's you might as well consider the world as being covered with leather so I took a different I don't know I just took a a little different I had a different thought about that okay you were talking and, and and so I just wondered about the story. You know, was the story that 
if you can, if you wear shoes and you can go anywhere, it's kind of a positive take on wearing shoes where the other side is kind of more like, okay, if I just wear shoes all the time, then I'm not really feeling the world because it's covered with leather. <laughs> okay. I think we're falling into uh, taking this uh, metaphor a little, a little, really far, I think, <laughs> which I was doing too. <laughs> I thought about that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just see it as a point of, uh, you know, uh, how much work you're an engineer you probably have some idea <laughs> how much effort it would be to cover the whole world with leather <laughs> and well, how, easy it is to, how easy it is to accomplish the same thing by just wrapping something around your feet <laughs> yeah I guess it's just, uh, obviously some of these stories you can you can see them in different ways sometimes yeah, so. yeah. I probably started this by calling my talk putting on your shoes, which probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, okay, let's see. Any anybody else? Chance, last chance. I'm Maureen and then Bruce. I'm keeping the stack in. The oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for stacking. And um, hey, Pat, that is a great talk. I in a couple. A couple of things, the way you give examples for me, um, you know, it's, I was trying to think of a metaphor, but you know, I don't know if you ever made like a roast or something and you slice it and then you put garlic in there, but that was kind of, kind of violent, you know, but somehow the way you give examples, they seem. <laughs> Wait a minute. What's violent about cooking oh, a roast? Me, the metaphor of cutting the meat, you know, and then sticking peppercorns oh. or garlic in there is like, ew, but oh. the way in which you give examples to me that really settle in the content you know, like it makes it really personal and I get it. It's like, oh, I got it. And one thing you said, I wanted to um, say, you know, Suzuki has that thing about a swinging door. And, and I had thought of that as being like when you're meditating, you're kind of going in and out, you know, big world, small world. But you talked about um, kind of sometimes being unable to hear the first time somebody said something and then being angry at them like, hey, I can't help it. And then immediately kind of realizing that also you get mad at people because of things. And then like, oh, and to me, that was an example also of a swinging door where you're like seeing it from your own perspective and then able to, to say, oh, and, and I do the same thing. And, and to me, that's kind of also really helpful to think, oh, just like me, you know, which, which I don't know. I really, I thought that was, um, I don't know. I, I like the, I like that. Oh yeah, I like that. I like that too. Like translating his that swinging door in that in that manner, like there's two sides to everything, you know. Yeah, right. Mm. But thank yeah. you for your talk, Pat. Well, thanks a lot, Maureen. Yeah. And there was someone else. I, um, yeah, I I think I was next. Oh, Bruce. Hi. Yeah, the, the that story at the beginning about the shoes versus covering the world definitely. Um, connected with me and, and where I went with it was what the motivation is or, or where the focus is. Is it a matter of something's wrong with the world and I need to fix it so that it can suit, be suitable to me versus what can I do to work on myself to adjust myself so that I can go into the world and interact with it? 
You know, it's like, I need to cover everything so that it's, so that it doesn't bother me versus I can make this slight adjustment to how I am so that I can interact with the world. I think it's a matter, so I think it's a matter of what's skillful or, or what, what, um, what your mental state is because you also, and I think this was very apt as well, you, you compared it, or you brought up the notion of a suit of armor and, and the visor and closing off and protecting oneself. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, of course. Yet, you know, it's a difference between are you trying to shut yourself off versus are you trying to make it so that you um, don't have to shut off and yet are safe in, in going out there? You know, is because I'm not going. I'm not. I'm much less likely to interact with the world if I don't have shoes. Like if if I don't have what I need in order to just be safe and 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 functional. Um, but it's such a fine line, I think, between the skillfulness of doing what you need to care for yourself on the one hand, and on the other hand, trying to you know like like. like being very dualistic and, and saying something's wrong out there and I need to, you know, keep my distance from it. So that's all. I just thought it was a rich metaphor and, and I, I liked the, the chance to play with that. So thank you. Well, thank you, Bruce. I think you put some really good words on uh, a really good spin on it. Just uh, you, you kind of said exactly the way I think about it, but you said it more clearly. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Yeah, a, a rich metaphor. I like that. I like that term. So, yeah. Okay. Is there is there anyone else that has a hand up, Michael? Yes. Um, I do. Oh, you do. Oh, I, okay. First, I just want to thank you. Thank you very much for your talk, Pat. And I also just want to thank everybody who's made comments and uh, and shared their own thinking about about this um, this metaphor. Not just this metaphor, but uh you know what the bodhisattva path is and what practice is how do you practice with something very concrete and i agree with uh you know maureen uh that the the examples that you chose were really i think the fact that they're personal examples that you have struggled with and lived with that's what makes them you know real and land on on you know on me for example it's just like oh yeah i see that in myself so i just want i wanted to go back to your uh, one of the first examples that you gave about the air conditioner. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we've had uh, <laughs> this, the air conditioner has been the subject of, of many discussions. Oh, uh, other people have had like this sound and, you know, and uh, I just, I was ref reflecting uh, my own teacher, Paul Haller, uh, really loathed the sound of the, uh, the water in the zendo at Tassajara, it was a, a geothermal heating that oh. turned on and off. And you would hear this like whooshing sound when the when the water was circulating to heat the zendo. So he would basically, he made a rule. <laughs> that, you know, the, the Eno was not, uh, basically only one person was allowed to touch the, the thermostat and that was the Eno. And um, he basically asked the Eno, do not, uh, do not let the the water flow during zazen. And <laughs> so he tried to cover the world with leather. The zendo well, with leather. <laughs> you, you can think that, but but you know, in his in his um, 
you know, his teaching, which you, you didn't really notice until you were sitting in the Zendo and it was, you know, 15 degrees outside and the heat would be off for hours while you sat. Um, <laughs> and soon the aunt, you know, was begging him to let him turn on the, uh, you know, the heat during Kinhin at least, <laughs> so that we would have some heat. But everybody sitting in the Zendo uh, was able to have the opportunity to practice um, patience and forbearance. Being cold and uncomfortable that yeah, way. Exactly. So, so he gave them a great gift. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so it's very interesting how, you know, on the one hand, you could say, Here's this teacher who's got a you know an aversion. He's acting on. He's using his power to like make the zendo cold, <laughs> right? You can go that way. You know the mind can go that way. And then on the other hand, you know, the fact that he had this uh, uh, made this pronouncement uh, allowed you know the sixty or so monks in the zendo to practice with um, their own discomfort and patience. I mean, there's nothing in that that um, you know, people didn't get sick from getting, you know, have they were just uncomfortable, right? And sitting in the sitting in the zendo, and then other things would would spring up, right? Rules about whether or not you could cover your hands in the zendo while you sat. So it's very, you know, of course this is monastic life, so it's very uh, specific about what the forms are, and it would, you know, and you know, this question would come up of when somebody is new to the center and it's on during the summer and it's a new guest, for example, and you're offering uh, Zazen instruction, you know, one of the rules in the Zendo is you don't, you go in, you cover your shoulders, you don't wear mini skirts, you know, there's a certain dress code. And sometimes people would be asked to go change, which I will say is, you know, pretty, uh, if it's your first time going into a Zen center and somebody says, I'm sorry, you're not allowed in our Zendo because you're not wearing the right attire, go change. Uh, I just wanna say that that can, that can go many different ways depending on the mind of the person who's receiving it as well as the person who's you know asking for that person to do that. So I just, in terms of this, I just wanna actually ask you what your process was when you said, um, you know, at some point you noticed that you were no longer getting upset at the sound of the air conditioner going on or off or going on. Uh, was there any, did you have a, did you apply any of the Shantideva teachings? Did you, were you aware of applying any of those teachings back at the time? Or was it something that just naturally fell away for you? And how did you, um, yeah, given Shanti Deva's teachings on these these three different types of patients, uh, how would that bring to bear on something? You know, it's it's nice to have a very concrete example, like oh, the irritation that we feel when you know something goes, the air conditioner goes on, right, and we have to listen to this noise while we're sitting. I don't know. That was a little convoluted, but uh, I get it. Yeah, okay. uh, I, I loved your comment about it makes the, the swinging door thing that Maureen said even more uh, alive but uh, no I it, it just it, it just fell away uh, naturally I, I suppose there was already on my part involved that I maybe started to uh, see so I'm not quite sure what happened in my mind it wasn't like a big effort I made it, it fell away um, um, 
So it might not have had anything to do with maturity. It may just have had to do with a change of focus or now there's something different that irritates me. <laughs> but over the years, I find many less things irritate me than used to. Um, I don't so, want to belabor this. Okay. Ernest, what? <laughs> anybody noticed that when Paul was here two years ago, during the meditation, he got up and turned off the air conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I noticed that, Ernest. <laughs> Oh, poor Paul. <laughs> you know, I, and I, I think, you know, in that example, too, I, I, I really, you know, the intention of the person who's, um, you know, is so important, right? What's going on for the person um, when, so when Paul turns off the air conditioner, he is, you know, having talked to him extensively about this, <laughs> he is, um, you know, it, it, for him, he's a steward of the zendo right as the as the senior dharma teacher and um uh there's a certain way in which when we go into the zendo it is a protected space right we're not I mean, even if you have a zen center that's in the middle of a bustling city in a really maybe even a dangerous area it's like where you like city center back in the day um at san francisco zen center you know you'd be sitting in the zendo and you'd hear drug deals happening right outside the window or you know somebody um you know assaulting somebody right outside the window and people sometimes would have to jump up and run outside and you know stand in the way of somebody who is going to hit somebody else you know something like so those, those kinds of things will happen so but the zendo space itself is designed to be conducive to uh being able to sit <laughs> you know, so, so, and then just to say also the, the, um, this question of whether or not, um, I think Rich's question of the, uh, you know, how to, how to, what's the appropriate response, you know, when somebody comes in and every person is different and there's no canned answer. It's not like, oh, I need to just follow this rule of like, oh, we don't let people into the Zenda with their shoes on. Right. It's like, well, what do you end up doing in the moment? And, this is the, you know, this is kind of like the, the study of the self that we're doing. So I really appreciated your story, Rich, and, and how it is a koan. And just, you know, this, this question of what is the, what is the truth of the matter when, if they, you know, you get up to turn off the air conditioner, like what's going on for you? Or if you allow the air conditioner to keep going on and off, but, you know, like how do we practice and cultivate patience in all the other paramitas, right? Is this very deeply individual um, uh, endeavor where we're studying our own mind, which I think is the, as Bruce pointed out, is the point of this, one of the main points of the, the covering your feet story, right? It's like, how do you train your mind as opposed to trying to, you know, train everybody else to accord to your wishes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, I, I just, I loved this, uh, this, this whole talk and discussion, Pat. Thank yeah, you. I May I respond to Mako? May I? Please, please respond. I just, I guess the question is, you know, with Paul setting the temperature in the room, it's like who's setting, I guess the question that comes up is who is setting the temperature in the room? You know, like for me, as the guy's telling the kid that he couldn't come in without his shoes, you know, I'm setting the temperature in the room, sort of like, that's the question for me is like, who's setting the temperature in the room? Who's setting the, the, the climate, you know? And how is the, what is the, how's the climate affecting different people? You know? Yeah. 
how are the conditions affecting different people? They're not, it's not, the reaction is not always the same. And, and I can't assume that it is. And that I can't assume that everybody has a really good baseline reaction to stress or, or harsh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. So that's why it just feels like a koan, you know? Yeah. I think it's so useful to have a position like being Fugado that day where you have to make, um, you have to uh, make a, a statement or if you're in, get up and change the temperature of the room, uh, a lot of us get into a dithery kind of thing where we worry and worry. Well, are some people too cold and some people too hot? And is there, have I made everybody uncomfortable? You know, it's very natural to worry about those kind of things. So it's it's good to see to have those uh, positions so that you can learn to do that somehow and, and calm down a little bit about you know what, what's going on with other people because just. Not a whole lot we can do about it. I, I love the title of a book. Have you ever heard of the book of, uh, oh, I'm darn, now I'm, I'm having a senior moment. What, what other people think of you is none of your business. That <laughs> was a real comfort to me when I read that title. <laughs> I don't know that the book is as good as its title, but whatever. Mary has her hand raised. Yeah, I just want to, um, uh, kind of uh, echo what, what Rich has been saying, which is that we often project on to the situation what we experience as being comfortable for ourselves. Mm. And, you know, if I'm a menopausal woman who's having a hot flash, I'm gonna turn up, <laughs> I'm gonna turn up the uh, air conditioning. I'm gonna have it, I'm gonna put it on and I'm going to not necessarily reflect on that my internal temperature is a shared experience, right? And so I just, I just, I think that there is the, um, there's a lack of reflection sometimes on what we assume to be, of course, the way it should be based upon our own cultural view. And just as, you know, just our experience of our body temperature is just something that we project onto others that alternate I'll, I'll, I'll turn the temperature down because everybody else must be experiencing the world the way I'm experiencing it. And so decentering from our own point of view and trying to take the perspective of the other is, um, I think it's really hard for us. <laughs> and I just, I'm just you know, wanting to, to echo that in, in another way. Thanks, Mary. I saw Tim Sand and I think- yeah, yeah, thank you so much for your talk, Pat. And I'm really enjoying the way this kind of conversation is um, <laughs> developing and kind of um, evolving. Um, I just wanna give another example. <clears throat> when I uh, first started sitting in Chapel Hill and started doing Sashin's, uh, our teacher there, Joshua would, um, <clears throat> especially Rohatsu Sashin, there could be snow on the ground outside in, in North Carolina. And during, I think, especially during Kenyan periods, she would ask the Eno to open every window in the Zendo. So suddenly it was, you know, 40 degrees in the Zendo. Um, and um, one other example is at Tassahara, you know, a lot of the cabins don't have electricity and they certainly don't have hot water. So when you get up in the morning, you know, before Zazen, 
um, often the first thing is to brush your teeth and wash your face. And, and it takes a while to get used to like very early in the morning, this very uncomfortable feeling of taking ice cold water and putting it on your face. Um, but both, both things like taught me a visceral kind of like um, enjoyment. There's actually like uh, being that cold in the midst of a practice environment kind of is refreshing. It's very like enlivening, it wakes you up. And the same with very cold water. And I think, you know, like we've been talking about, so much of our human life is about comfort and about like making conditions just right so that I don't feel uncomfortable. And we miss, you know, in that effort, the, um, the actual enjoyment of discomfort, you know, that we don't quite know is there until somebody like you know, Paul turning off the AC or Joshua opening the windows, like forces us to have that experience. We might not choose that ourselves, but, um, and then I guess the last thing I would say is, um, it occurred to me that she only opened the windows during a session. So it's like people who have committed to practice probably have some experience, you know? It wasn't something she did on a Sunday morning when there were new, new people in the Zendo or people that are just trying out practice. So, uh, you know, we always have to, to determine what is the circumstance now? Um, and I think in Rich's example, yeah, I mean, my own, my own sense would be to say, yeah, please leave your shoes on. But just the fact that you had that interaction about shoes, I would guess that that person next time might come back having washed their feet and take off their shoes. But, it, but um, because they're new, because they don't know these rules, you know, to, to have some different kind of allowance for that versus, you know, you've been in practice for many years or something. So, um, yeah, thank you again so much, Pat. Well, thank you for your, your comments about the cold. I, I know that feeling too of being very stimulated by being cold in the session.